This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. Hello, I'm Josh King, sitting in the A chair today for Adam Belmar, who's off this week. Today, the mayor and the blogger. We speak first with Seti Warren, advance man, Navy veteran, and now mayor of Newton, Massachusetts, my hometown. Before finishing his first term, Seti declared himself a candidate to take out Senator Scott Brown, who holds Teddy Kennedy's seat and is up for re-election in 2012. We'll talk about what went into that decision and why he bowed out. Then, we're going into cyberspace with Vanity Fair's blogger extraordinaire Julie Weiner. While still a student at Barnard, she became one of the voices of Wonkette, one of the first revolutionary political blogs. Then, still in college, Vanity Fair came calling. Today, she works for Graydon Carter, part of the Condé Nast empire, keeping her eye on all things political 24-7. But first, we are joined by my friend the mayor of Newton, Massachusetts, my hometown, the holder of the job that I most coveted for all of my life, simply so that I could stand out of temp- outside of Temple Mishkan de Fila on the high holidays and shake everybody's hands. Seti Warren, welcome to Polyoptics. Josh, it is such an honor to be with you. Thank you. I'm I, sorry that uh, you're not fulfilling your dream of being... <laughs> you can live vicariously through me. Seti, you look great in a yarmulke. I, I, I know you can pull it off just fine. I can. I will. I will. What's it like being mayor of Newton, Massachusetts, now that you're about, what, two years into it? Um, I love it. You know, I, I'm born and raised here in the city. I actually live in the house where I grew up, right down the street from City Hall. I have two... Beautiful kids, a three-year-old named Abigail, a young uh, six-month-old named John, and my wife and I uh, absolutely love this community. What do you, how do you spend your days? I mean, what we, we've done 39 episodes now of Polyoptics. We've never had a sitting mayor, and we've never had a person who, frankly, began their political career as a lowly advanced guy like me and now lords over one of the most esteemed sur- suburban cities in the United States. Uh, you know, it, it is phenomenal uh, to uh, to be the chief executive. I, people used to tell me that uh, being a mayor is the toughest job in politics. And the reason for that is because you're making literally hundreds of decisions um, every single week that affect people's lives. High-level policy to the potholes of the street and to the streetlight, to making sure that uh, public safety and education are on the right track and financial sustainability is in place for the long term. So you're dealing with uh, a wide range of issues, and the buck stops at my desk. And uh, I know other mayors out there appreciate that that challenge uh, right now. We're in tough economic times, but uh, Newton is a unique place, and we have a lot of community involvement and engagement. And uh, in two years, we've done quite a bit to to make sure uh, Newton is on the right path. You're the first ever uh, openly elected uh African-American mayor of a city in Massachusetts. Is that correct? That's right. In fact, uh, Newton is the only city in the country that has a black mayor, black governor, and black president. And um, we have uh, 97% white uh, population here in the city. And it's a tribute to our community that uh, 
uh, I was able to demonstrate my capacity uh, by really campaigning directly. And people judge me on my my capacity to lead the city in difficult financial times. And uh, they gave me the honor of becoming mayor, and I'm really proud to be able to lead the city. As you know, I, I grew up in Newton, uh, born in 1965, lived in Wabin uh, until I left for college, and it's obviously well known as a progressive, a liberal city, a very democratic city, uh, although its mayors have been, I think, either Republican or nonpartisan uh, for at least part of my life, like Teddy Mann. Um, it, and you mentioned its demographic makeup. Teddy, you've always been a guy, as long as I've known you, who's practiced politics behind the scenes with Bill Clinton, with John Kerry. When you moved out into the spotlight uh, as the person who people are either going to vote for or vote against. Even in a city like Newton, have you ex- experienced any sense of racism and, and been made to confront that? That's a great question. You know, when I was campaigning, uh, the issue of race hadn't come up uh, in a direct sense. It came up after I won, believe it or not. Um, I, and I think a lot of it is because of the attention that was paid uh, me becoming the first popular elected black mayor, and I think uh, that our citizens really, you know, appreciated the fact that that they elected uh, an African American there to be their mayor um, without judging me my skin color. And you know, you and I, Josh, you know, you go way back, you know, being advanced people, being behind the scenes uh, really taught me quite a bit. You know, working for. Uh, really one of the greatest presidents in modern history, I think, Bill Clinton, and then, uh, of course, John Kerry, who's a terrific leader here in the Commonwealth, senior senator, uh, both of whom you know, you have a chance to, to learn from uh, and really look at how they make tough decisions and those glimpses that you have as an advanced person. You get an up-close-and-personal view of, of leadership style and um, the process of, of governing. Uh, you know, it's, it, having a front seat of, uh, in history of, of history is amazing, and it's really helped me, uh, you know, guide the city in difficult times. Um, you know, recalling, uh, you know, going through uh, the times I had with both uh, with both uh, John Kerry and Bill Clinton. As as you probably know, the the, poly, the word polyoptics is a is a mashup of the word politics and optics, and it's what we do as advanced people to create an image that we know is either going to get on the news uh, on in in Boston and Channel Four, or Five, or Seven, or on the Boston Globe or the Newton Tab. Uh, and so, what what's the mixture of on the one hand polyoptics, on the second hand? actually checking up on your city's services to make sure they're doing what they're right. And on the third hand, pure fun when it comes to your ability as mayor to ride snow plows in the middle of a blizzard. <laughs> well, you know, what your polyoptics is such a, you know, it is so important in government today for people to have confidence in leadership. And, uh, you know, we did one thing we understood here in Newton, and, and I think it's a microcosm that's going on nationally. Um, people want to know uh, what and what goes into the decisions that 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 uh, a leader makes and why. Just, uh, they want to see a level of transparency and they want to see results. Uh, we held 24 town hall meetings in the last two years uh, across the city uh, in all eight of our wards, and we made sure that we um, had real interaction uh, with our residents and. Um, I think that made a huge difference, and and I, we, when I was doing those town hall meetings, I recalled, you know, our advanced days and how important those optics are. 
Um, even if you did not go to one of the town hall meetings, people knew that their mayor was reaching out and listening. And this was being reported. And that, uh, I think that helped us pass our first budget, 24 to 0. Uh, we have 24 aldermen, incidentally. Uh, and then uh, successful passage of our second budget and make uh, decisions in City Hall after hearing feedback from our residents that made a difference, whether it was uh, direct communication around uh, services in the city from, from snow plowing, you mentioned snow plows, to, uh, to ensuring street lights are fixed, to making sure that we're making real investments in infrastructure and education, uh, which we heard, and public safety, which we heard loud and clear from our residents. So there's a direct correlation between the optics of these town halls, uh, listening to people, and then you know making sure those results are known. Um, and uh, that's that's an important part of governing. It's a really important part of governing. President Clinton did that so well uh, in, in his eight years, um, you know, in reaching out to people. And those images, and I know uh, people remember of him uh, going directly to people, listening to them. There's a real connection. Um, and I know you are a large part of that, Josh. Josh King so did all that for you me. Were, you were the guy. You were the guy. So, so Seti, a different kind of polyoptics. I think it's happening tonight at O'Hara's Pub uh, in Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, why are Now, we watched another Massachusetts event happen in the Rose Garden. President Obama, Skip Gates, the Beer Summit. Are you going to be having beers with constituents tonight? <laughs> well, what I decided to do uh, is bring office hours out to our community. We've got 13 villages here in the city of Newton. A lot of communities have one center, uh, and they're distinct and they're different. They have different uh, backgrounds, uh, people. So what I decided to do is really take my office out, of the, out in the road, and I've, uh, you know, want to generate some commerce in some of our business establishments um, and uh, allow people to have access to the mayor. So we're doing that tonight, and. Uh, uh, looking forward, we've got some constituents who have signed up uh, to to talk to the mayor, and and uh, and uh, we'll we'll be open for business out in the villages. The the wicked local blog on the uh, on the Newton tab is buzzing with comments about your your pub crawl, and I I can't wait to sort of hear how it's reported. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that too, Josh. <laughs> so, setting you are now firmly back. In city in city hall, I'll call it city hall in the city of Newton, Massachusetts. Back from a foray into running for the United States Senate against Scott Brown, I want our listeners to hear some of your introductory video explaining your background as you got into the race. Hi, I'm Seti Warren, the mayor of Newton, and today I'm announcing my candidacy to represent Massachusetts in the United States Senate. Many of you don't know me. I'm probably about as well known as Scott Brown was at this point two years ago. But I'm announcing here in front of the home where I grew up and where my wife Tassie and I are now raising our daughter. Because this is where I learned the importance of standing up for what you believe in. And over the course of the coming weeks and months, I hope to meet many of you in person or here online where we can talk about the many challenges that face our state and our country. These times are not easy, but families like yours and mine have overcome challenges before. Seti, Teddy Mann, David Cohen, they served for almost a generation. What were you thinking trying to get into the U.S. Senate after two years in Newton? Well, you know, Scott Brown has cast uh, votes 
against the interests repeatedly of not only the citizens of Newton but the Commonwealth um, over the course of his term. Um, he has uh, not in any way, I think, provided the leadership uh, that we need uh, in a junior senator. Um, and uh, when I, you know, over the course of the last uh, 18 months or so, um, I knew that we needed to have someone uh, that uh, could really be a partner uh, for Senator Kerry and not cancel his votes uh, in investing in education, uh, investing in uh, real job creation uh, here in the United States, uh, protecting uh, you know, working families, protecting uh, programs like Head Start and otherwise. And so I uh, made the decision at that time uh, that, w that we needed that leadership, and I decided to run. There's an urgency um, in that moment, and, and there still is. Um, I'm proud of the fact that I decided to run. I'm glad it, uh, I had the chance to, uh, to get out there and connect with communities all across the Commonwealth. Um, it was clear uh, that Elizabeth Warren had captured the imagination um, and really the attention of Democrats uh, all over the country and, and in the Commonwealth, uh, and that she uh, was the right person to be the Democratic nominee. And, and I got out of the race uh, in September. I'm glad uh, I made the decision to do that. I have subsequently endorsed uh, Elizabeth. I think she's a terrific candidate, and I think she's going to be a great United States senator. Um, and we, what we understand here in you know in, in politics in, in the country today is that we we've got to get away from this divisive politic. We need to have people that aren't afraid to make tough decisions. Talk about investing in things that matter, eliminating eliminating areas that that don't. Um, and speaking the truth uh, to where we need to go as a country. I have to do that as a chief executive every single day here in the city of Newton. Uh, and we need that kind of leadership in the Senate right now. I know Elizabeth's going to provide it, and, um, and we need to win next year. But, Seti, let me take off my, my Democrat, former Democrat aide hat and put on my polyoptics hat and bow down to Scott Brown as a prince of polyoptics with his Carhartt jacket and his pickup truck. And what he did to Martha Coakley in 2008, was, or, or when he, in the special election, was he just dismantled her. How is, now from with you, with your advanced person's hat on, and take off your partisan hat, how is Elizabeth Warren doing as a polyoptic candidate against a guy who really does sort of get into the red meat, blue collar electorate of Massachusetts? It's a great question. You know, I think what Elizabeth has done very well uh, is translated her, um, you know, her real advocacy and fight around consumer protection, um, around uh, protecting the middle class uh, and building it back uh, into a candidacy. And she's uh, articulate, she's passionate, um, and she's done a great job in talking directly uh, to to voters here in the state. Um, and I think she's going to do an even better job next year. Um, so I think I think she's on to something. I think she, um, you know, I know Senator Brown has cast himself as a uh, as a moderate, independent voice. It's hardly been the case. Uh, he's voted uh, repeatedly uh, with uh, uh, Tea Party elements down in Washington, extreme elements down in the Republican Party, and um, he's has not been a moderate voice, and he hasn't been a fighter for middle class. He's, uh, vote against things like community development block grants. I can go on and on. Uh, I, I, so I, I think she's. I think she's onto something. I think she's from an optics standpoint and from a policy standpoint. I think she's translated her experience and 
and her capacity to, to, to connect with people very well. We, we leave policy for Chris John on Port SETI, just to be clear. <laughs> you know, uh, she had a great job. She probably saw this. Her opening uh, day, she was out at a tea stop. Uh, I don't know if you saw that video. Yeah, I, I saw a picture of it. Uh, she was out talking to voters. She went to some diners. I mean, she would have made you proud, Josh. <laughs> let's let's hear a little bit, Seti, from Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth's uh, opening video that you can see on her website that introduces her to her potential constituents. Sure. I'm Elizabeth Warren. I'm running for the United States Senate. And before you hear a bunch of ridiculous attack ads, I want to tell you who I am. Like a lot of you, I came up the hard way. My dad sold carpet. And when he had a heart attack, my mom went to work so we could keep our house. We all worked. My three brothers joined the military. I got married at 19, had two kids, worked my way through college, taught elementary school, and then I went to law school. For years, I worked to expose how Wall Street and the big banks are crushing middle-class families. It just isn't right. Seti, in your intro video, you talked about your dad and his service in the Navy, and his work in Harlem, uh, and his work, uh, his growing up in Harlem, his work to desegregate lunch counters, uh, and help returning Vietnam vets. And Elizabeth, too, is, is relying on her bi- biography to introduce her to candidates. How important are these biographical elements, and do they actually get into, into voters' heads as they think about who they're going to support? I think they are extremely important. Uh, I believe that, that voters want to get a sense of and the measure of a person. You know, how did they come up? What's their background? What influenced them? Um, and, um, you know, my video, as you mentioned, mentioned my my father and his real dedication to others um, growing up in a tough block and then really giving me the capacity to do what I'm doing as well as other young kids. He, he really devoted his life to other young kids like himself. And that really inspired me to get into public service. That's the reason why I'm sitting here as mayor of Newton. It's the reason why I joined the military after 9-11, did a year-long tour in Iraq, uh, because I'm passionate about the country and um, about making a difference. the reason why I served in the Clinton White House with you and uh, for John Kerry, and I think for Elizabeth, um, really telling the story of her background, how she came up, and what influenced her to be a real fighter for average people, for the middle class as uh, setting up this Consumer Protection Bureau uh, against a lot of odds and a lot of uh, people that uh, said it wasn't in the interest of uh, average, everyday Americans, which it is. Um, She was a fighter for that, and I think that's what I think people want to know. They want to know what really influences, what inspires, why are people coming into their living rooms saying, vote for me. Um, It's extremely important. It makes a huge difference. As you contemplated what what direction your life would take you after 9-11. You know, y- you and I, we worked in the White House, we we focused on what President Clinton was doing that day, that month, that year. We didn't really sort of get deeply into each other's backgrounds and your dad's own background and things that might have motivated me, but on September 11, 2001, uh, you, what, what went into your decision to enlist in the Navy Reserve and become an intelligence officer? And then Interestingly, this week marked the ultimate pullout of U.S. troops from Iraq. What were your thoughts as you looked at some of those pictures of camps that you probably worked in, served in, now deserted? You know, after we were that horrible attack that day, um, you know, I'd always thought about serving in the military after my father's service, my grandfather's service, World War II, my dad's service in Korea. 
Um, and I knew uh, it was time for me to step up for this country that I really care about, that I love, um, and uh, put the uniform on. And I'm proud that I did. You know, I ultimately uh, ended up being deployed to go to Iraq from 2007 to 2008 as a Navy intelligence specialist. Up, I was up in northern Iraq uh, working uh, with our army up there. And, you know, I'm proud of the fact I served along with other thousands of men and women uh, in uniform as I saw those troops coming back. I'm so pleased that President Obama kept his commitment uh, to end the war in a responsible manner. Um, you know, I'm proud of uh, those that, that were there and those that didn't come back and their gold star families to make the ultimate sacrifice for our country. You know, 1% of the population uh, serves in the military now, voluntary force. And uh, we should show our appreciation by making sure when those veterans come home, they have the right benefits, uh, job opportunities. Uh, oftentimes, we, we celebrate, uh, and thank goodness we got through uh, generations of, of uh, appreciating the, the warrior and not uh, the war, uh, but we celebrate their service, but we, they're often forgotten when they come home. Uh, and uh, you know, I know the president has done tremendous amount of work on homelessness around veterans, but it's one of the issues I care deeply about and that I will be working on, um, as well as being mayor uh, in my own community and beyond. Steady, there's a huge movie uh, about to open in theaters, uh, War Horse, Steven Spielberg's uh, uh, cinematic vision of World War One. A elementary school in Wabin, the Albert Edgar Anger School, is named after a young lieutenant who actually lost his life yes. from Wabin in World War One. Are there plans in Newton to commemorate or memorialize those who served in Iraq and Afghanistan? We are. Uh, there's a memorial uh, that. There's two things happening. There's a memorial, 9/11 memorial. Uh, that will serve as a reminder of, of the sacrifice of those who lost their lives, not only um, during 9-11, but, but those who uh, committed their lives to, to protect New York country. Uh, there is also um, um, a memorial we are going to uh, build within City Hall uh, and really refurbish to honor all the members of the military uh, that have served from Newton. There's quite a huge number. Uh, Forty thousand, um, and so we're we're we intend to memorialize them um, inside our our, our, our city uh, building here. One uh, native of Massachusetts who served gallantly in the military um, was is the now the senior senator from Massachusetts, John Kerry, who you worked for uh, as trip director in two thousand four. Now, if President, if John Kerry, Senator Kerry, had been elected and re-elected, he would still be in office closing out his second term today. Have you ever sort of, from the hindsight of history, gone back and thought about 2004, that very close vote in Ohio, some of the photo ops like the uh, the, the hunting expedition in Boardman, and, and thought, well, that probably cost us 100 or, or 1,000 votes here, and things you might have done differently had you uh, really been at the helm of that campaign? Well, that's a great question. I think there's probably, <laughs> I'm sure that the, the senator himself thinks about a number of things that, you know, we could have done differently. I certainly think about it. I think, uh, you know, look, I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, I think the world would have been a much better place if John Kerry had become president. I wish he had. Um, he's a terrific 
you know, leader in our state now and, and senior senator and leader in our country. And, um, you know, you, you always learn the lessons of previous campaigns. I think you know that, Josh. And you, you sort of take stock in, in multiple, you know, um, things that you could have done good or, or better. Um, I don't spend too much time uh, lamenting over it, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't know that he does either. I think uh, he's, he, you know, I think he realizes, uh, uh, and I think we all realize that, uh, you know, it was so close, and, 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 you know, you always could do a little bit better, obviously, particularly with a close election. But um, we have a president now uh, that I think, um, you know, needs to get reelected, and uh, you know, I'm certainly going to be working for him. I know a lot of people around the country will be working for him, and um, I'll be focused on uh, on that uh, on that election. That's what I'm focusing focusing on right now. Well, Seti, uh, we we wish you all the best. Thank you so much for coming on Polyoptics, and I look. I wish I could only be at O'Hara's Pub with you this week <laughs> as, as you meet your constituents for it's office spirit, hours. Josh, it's spirit. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be on. Thanks so much, Seti. Well, that was a great conversation with my old friend, Seti Warren, mayor of Newton, Massachusetts. I mean, I remember when we were out at event sites in 1995 in Fall River in New Bedford, Massachusetts with Bill Clinton and... I was giving the guy a bunch of orders, and he was doing anything I'd ask. And now, if I went back home to Newton, to my parents' house, uh, I would do whatever he asked. And that's what happens in politics, that when you actually decide to go from being behind the scenes and put your hat into the ring and put your reputation on the line and ask for the voters' support, and they come to you and they give you a majority, you too can find an office in City Hall in one of the greatest cities in the United States, a place that I still call home when I can. So it's great to be with SETI. Um, you know, it is the holiday season, and I so wish that Adam Belmar, my co-host on this program, were here for this broadcast, because I think we would both agree that this week we were given a wonderful holiday present in the return of one of the icons of television journalism. I was watching, as I often do, as I always do, NBC Nightly News uh, with Brian Williams on Monday night this week. And he reported, I think he did a, an, an opening piece about America's pullout from Iraq, the return of the last troops, and how that was a story that sort of if you listen to the reporting from the Pentagon and the White House, you bought the idea that uh, America's involvement in Iraq really was coming to an end. But as you hear him introduce the next segment and introduce the person who brought the next story to viewers, you'll understand that for me, and probably for Adam Belmar, it was like going back to 1979 again to get what seemed to be the real story of the taking of the hostages in Iran and then eventually what became Nightline. Now we get to see the reporting of our new colleague around here, Ted Koppel, who went back to Iraq, where he covered the start of the war, of course, and on this trip saw something very different. He's with us here in the studio tonight. Ted, welcome. Thank you, Brian. Particularly at this holiday season, it's kind of nice to believe that all Americans are coming back from Iraq, but not quite. Let's clear up a few misconceptions. The U.S. military is leaving Iraq. The U.S. government is not. 
In fact, in southern Iraq, just across the border from Iran, site of some of the richest oil fields in the world, in Basra, the United States is building a gigantic consulate. And that's no coincidence. It is, as Consul General Piper Campbell confirms, about the oil. It is about the oil. I mean, listen to the tones of that voice. Ted Koppel kept us company, those of us who stayed up late enough to his 11.35 to 12.05 broadcast for so many years on Nightline. And it was a national treasure that really was lost when he left the anchor chair of that broadcast, even though it continues as a very popular show. It's not Ted. And so when I was watching on Monday night and I saw Brian throw to Ted and I saw how sort of succinctly but sonorously Ted Koppel introduced his package and how his package really was very much against the grain of the reporting of of what the message was from Washington this week that we were pulling out of Iraq. Here was Ted Koppel trying to give us the straight truth with his voice, with his writing, and with the edited pictures that went along with it that told such a, a vivid story. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. This is POTUS. 2012 is on. I have views, but they are different than the other candidates. I'm the one who opposed the Wall Street bailout. Both Mitt Romney and Newt Gingrich supported the Wall Street bailout. We have a choice in this race. You know, we have a choice between a panderer-in-chief, a lobbyist-in-chief, or a commander-in-chief. Game on. President Obama has adopted an appeasement strategy. Ask Osama bin Laden and uh, the... 22 out of 30 top al-Qaeda leaders who've been taken off the field, uh, whether I engage in appeasement. Hear unfiltered coverage of the campaign every day on POTUS. As president, I'll end Obama's war on religion. The eight years of Obama will truly make the country uh, dramatically more difficult and have dramatically greater problems. I have a bold plan to try to get this economy going, to throw out the tax code, reduce rates. Their philosophy is simple. We are better off when everybody is left to fend for themselves and play by their own rules. 2012 is on. I am here to say they are wrong. POTUS. This is Josh King. We are back on Polyoptics on Sirius XM, channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Our 40th episode, the last original episode we'll do this year, we will be on hiatus next week with one of your favorite episodes to repeat. And then Sirius XM, the POTUS channel, will be doing a year in review uh, right before the new year. And Adam Belmar and I will be back in the first week of 2012 with another hopefully 50 or so episodes of Polyoptics. And we are joined now by a very special guest, Vanity Fair's Julie Weiner. She runs the blog for Vanity Fair. She's one. She's a frequent contributor many times a day. Her background is incredibly interesting. Uh, and Julie, welcome and thank you for joining us in Polyoptics. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. What have you been writing about today? Today, let's see, the end of the war in Iraq, which you were talking about earlier. And it's actually been kind of a slow day because I just finished um, preparing uh, Vanity Fair does an annual beefcakes calendar with Republican, hot Republican men photoshopped onto the bodies of firefighters, cowboys, um, models in swimsuits. So I was preparing text for that. If there was anything that was more polyoptic than that, (laughs) I just do not know. 
okay. I'll, I'll send you an email when it's online. So what are some of the Republicans who, who merited uh, their face being photoshopped on a firefighter's body? Well, um, pretty much all the major players of the year um, and some people who sat out the game like Chris Christie and um, Mitch Daniels and but then all the candidates are there too. So Rick Perry is wearing a cowboy hat, uh, John Huntsman, former candidate Herman Cain and uh, let's see, um, Mitch McConnell. Um, just all the heavy hitters. You had a very interesting piece uh, that I that obviously caught my polyoptic eye this morning when I read it. Uh, you you seem to have picked up on a very interesting piece of editing in a commercial that Governor Rick Perry has put on YouTube that he hopes to go viral. It is sort of a attack on Mitt Romney, and I want to hear the the commercial and then get your take on it. Sure. Now, I'm a conservative businessman. Time and again, the White House has pointed to the Massachusetts law as the model for its Obamacare. I agree with uh, Mitt Romney. He's right. Jimmy Carter is throwing his weight behind Mitt Romney. Those who follow the path that we pursued will find us the best path. I, I like mandates. In my book, I said no such thing. I stand by what I wrote. Noting that the line about doing the same thing for everyone in the country has been deleted. Why, if it's good for Massachusetts and it's working in Massachusetts, would you apply to the rest of the country? I would. Romney has flip-flopped on so many issues. I didn't change my mind. Now I'm running for a different office. We'll end up with a nation that's taken a, a mandate approach. There are a lot of reasons not to elect me. He's right. Now, first of all, let's give due props to the ad men working for Governor Perry that they have a cinematic technique that is just a little more uh, a little more active than a great James Cameron film. Would you agree with that? They do. It's like a Michael Bay movie. It is I, a Michael Bay movie. <laughs> I, I'm only disappointed that there are more robots in the ad. Now, you picked up, and I apologize to our listeners in Radioland on listening on on Sirius XM channel 124, maybe driving over the highway, what you heard was the Michael Bay type music, the Michael Bay type editing, and interestingly, uh, Julie, you picked up on a picture that you'd seen before in this ad. I did. Um, a really striking image that comes towards the end of the ad that's sort of like the climax of the advertisement is Mitt Romney looking into a mirror, and in the mirror, Barack Obama's image appears. Um, and I noticed that that picture is actually photoshopped. Um, it used to be, of course, Barack Obama looking into a mirror and seeing Barack Obama's image. But um, the Perry people photoshopped Mitt Romney looking into the mirror. And I realized that the photo had come from the official White House Flickr feed that has daily updates from official White House photographer Pete Souza taking pictures around the White House. Um, and that is the origin of the ad. Now, have I found such a soulmate that another person who spends their day watching Pete Souza's Flickr feed of the white, from the White House photo office? It's it's very entertaining. Um, I am especially enthralled by all pictures of Bo Obama, who is um, a bit of an obsession of mine. But uh, also pictures of the president are fine. I mean, quite seriously, it, having worked in the White House during the Clinton years, my partner Adam Belmar worked during the Bush years. These were years uh, somewhat before some of the advent of digital photographic tools like Flickr and before a photographer like Pete Souza. And so there is some 
uh, agreement between President Obama, Michelle Obama, the family, and Pete that they will make a lot more of their personal lives known through these still images that get, because they're government property, get shared with the American people. Mm-hmm. They're great. The images are really, they're really lovely. Um, they really make me feel like the Obamas are my Facebook friends. I see pictures of them on Christmas and pictures of Joe Biden and Barack Obama high-fiving. I think it makes them very likable. I love following that feed. Uh, what other things are you following during the day, and how do you sort of decide what you're going to put up on the blog? Um, I read Mike Allen in the morning, um, a playbook email, and then I check large aggregator sites, the Daily Beast and the Huffington Post, Politico and the Hill, and then I'll always read the front page in the New York Times and the journal to sort of get a sense for what's going on. Um, I try to put up something in the morning that's fresh that day as opposed to something that happened late last night. Um, but usually just try to latch on to whatever everyone's going to be talking about on their morning commute and talking about when they get into the office. Oh, God, did you see that Ron Paul ad? Um, stuff that is going to have people talking. What's your editorial process? How long does it take to create a post and who, el- who else puts their eyes on it beside you before it goes live? Um, it totally depends how long it takes to create a post. Something like the Rick Perry advertisement took me only 15 minutes because I was nervous that somehow there was another person who was as familiar with this flicker feed as I was and they were going to scoop me. Um, Only would have been me. (laughs) Unless you were working that day. Um, So that I worked very quickly. Um, Sometimes like longer things I did, I see a picture of Donald Trump. I did a uh, a large slideshow uh, pictures of Donald Trump's hair from 360 degrees and annotated what I believe to be medical explanations for why his hair was the way it was. Um, and that do t- do tell. Um, well, <laughs> a colleague of mine, Bruce Handy, spent a pretty long time analyzing his hair and thought that. It was either a wood grain tattoo on his scalp or something called a double comb over. So hair from the back flipped forward (laughs) and then hair from the right flipped forward over to the left side. So it was like a quilt of hair. Um, So I talked a lot about that. And Uh, and does the the CIA or the National Security Agency uh, imaging office, can they sort of put together a composite... I'm not really a liberty to say. Okay, fine. fine. Um, so that will take something like two hours, but usually the norm is about half an hour, 45 minutes. Let's listen to uh, a recent uh, uh, pronouncement by Mr. Trump, and I want to get your take on it. Well, the Republicans, Neil, are very worried that I'm going to run as an independent, and I certainly have looked at it. I Even in my new book that just came out, I disclosed in the financial disclosure my net worth and my cash and my assets and lots of other things. And I am looking at it if the Republicans choose the wrong candidate, which is a possibility, and if the economy continues to be bad, which I think it will be because we have incompetent leadership. Julie, you work for Graydon Carter, Vanity Fair magazine. Um, Donald Trump is a longtime subject of that publication, uh, yes. uh, and you, you get a lot of mileage out of it. 
whoever is his brain trust about how to keep his Q rating up came up with this idea of having a December 27th debate in Iowa and what Republican candidate wouldn't grab the opportunity to be in the boardroom with Mr. Trump in Des Moines <laughs> and it seems like the Republican candidates somehow found a little spine to say no, didn't they? It seems like everyone. <laughs> yeah, except Newt Gingrich who will take any opportunity to say anything and Santorum who really has nothing to lose. Um, so he ended up pulling out, which was a bit disappointing. Although I must say, I'm very glad that I did not book tickets to Des Moines to be there on the 27th. Um, but yeah, it was, I can't believe he finagled his way out of that debate. It's really interesting. Well, he will figure out different ways to, to stay relevant in the race, I'm sure. And, you know, people are saying that if Gingrich does get the nomination, uh, that it does really open up the door for maybe maybe a serious third party candidate like Mike Bloomberg mm -hmm. or or just the the notion of a of a novelty like Donald Trump running again. I think the thing about Mike Bloomberg and Donald Trump, well, the thing about Donald Trump is that he is a narcissistic clown. But I think Michael Bloomberg, I don't know how much interest he has in running a national campaign. I think he's very happy on the Upper East Side in his baronial townhouse. I, I don't know how much how well he'd do traveling the country and talking to corn farmers in Iowa. Just, I, I can't really see it. You are such a Vanity Fair vlogger. <laughs> uh, how long have you been at this? I Almost two years. What were you doing uh, when you started? Um, I was editing... Um, co-editing a political blog called Wonket that used to be owned by Gawker, but by the time I got there, it was independently owned. Wonket is one of the original political blogs from the, the sort of snarky side that made its appearance in Washington early in the 21st century, founded, I think, by Anna Marie Cox, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, how, when you started writing for Wonket, how, what, did, were you still writing in the spirit of, of Anna Marie Cox? Had it evolved? How, what was your, what were your Wonket years like? My Wonka years were great. They were really wonderful. Um, were you in Washington to do it or up here? No, I was in school. I was doing. I attended school in the city, so I was here. And actually, uh, the man who edited Wonka at the time, Ken Lane, was living in uh, the desert in California, and my co-editor was living in Austin, Texas, and only one other person was actually living in Washington. Um, so... They were great. I really liked it. Um, I thought it was so much fun. I used to be such a Wonkette fangirl, um, and to work there was really so great. We had a lot of fun talking to each other in chat rooms about the news of the day and laughing and just sort of competitively trying to make each other laugh. It was great. And to work there before you, you were even graduated college. Right. It was a great after-school job. I mean, did, did you feel like... I mean. Wonket had it created a chattering class, a certain kind of chattering class in Washington, and there you were up in Barnard, and you were sort of keeping this chattering class going. How did you? And your you said your editor was in in Palm Springs and Austin. How did it feel to be sort of affecting the dialogue in Washington so far away? Um, if I affected the dialogue at all, I was very removed from that dialogue being a 19-year-old college student in Morningside Heights. So I'm not sure I'm really too convinced of that, but I will say that it's a lot of fun. And for example, when I went to Washington last April to go to the Correspondents Association dinner with Vanity Fair, I did know a lot of people in D.C. through Wonkette who were much more familiar with Wonkette than they were with Vanity Fair even, which is the one place that was true. So it was cool. It was great. 
So what's the mandate that you have from Graydon Carter and the other editors at Vanity Fair to, to keep the blog going? What are you, what are you trying to, uh, to do through the, the postings that you're putting up? Well, I think that uh, part of the raison d'etre of the Vanity Fair website is to draw on Vanity Fair's very specific tone and um, access to really create original content. So trying to put up the funniest essays or the most informed cultural criticism or the best photographs. Um, we're not going to scoop the Huffington Post or the New York Times. We really have no interest in doing that. It's just trying to really be a place that you can find gems. Every article should be something great that you want to tell someone else, oh god, there was an amazing essay on VanityFair.com, go read it. Um, so we're never going to be the first read of the day, but I think we are the best read of the day. And, and someone made the decision to take your piece from this week about the Rick Perry ad and call it a Vanity Fair exclusive and put it really on the homepage of VanityFair.com, right? Um, I called it an exclusive um, <laughs> because it was, uh, but uh, yes, it was put on the homepage um, by my editor, Chris Rouser, decides what goes on the homepage. So I, I came up with the word exclusive. Of course. You said that's so important to the blog is being able to write in the Vanity Fair tone. Mm -hmm. And uh, how is the tone sort of absorbed by you as a writer uh, with whatever training you had? And you were writing sort of in one tone or with one approach at Wonkat, what's the what's the education process to create a Vanity Fair writer? Um, well, when I was at Wonkat, I, like every other journalist of my generation living in New York, absolutely worshipped Spy Magazine. I, Didn't we all? Yeah. Jamie Malinowski. And... <laughs> it's so good. Um, so I had the book, The Funny Years, and I actually interned at Teen Vogue when I was in college, and I used to go to the Connie Ness Library where they have great collection of old magazines, and I would just pour over Spy, um, borrow them, and take them home, and usually bring them back. Um, and then all of the I still have a box of Spy. Really? I have a, my own big box of Spy. That's amazing. And then I was so happy when earlier this year they were all digitized and put online. I think with help from Kurt Anderson, actually collaborated with Google Books to do that. So. It was just so great. And a lot of the um, the writers who currently work at Vanity Fair and editors are left over from Spy. So there's a great familial institutional kind of feel to the place that everyone's been working together for 20 years and older editors really take an interest in younger people and it's a very social, very friendly office. So it's mostly just tone by osmosis. Um, talking to people who I admire and reading their writing a lot. And you also maintain your own blog and do do other writing in different styles outside of the Vanity Fair? Um, I have a Tumblr. Um, I, it's not any sort of professional political blog. It's mostly pictures of funny things I see around New York City. When you're watching either uh, uh, news on television, cable news, whether it's uh, CNN on one side or MSNBC on one side and Fox and Fox News on the other, or keeping your eye on Pete Souza's Flickr feed or scanning how the New York Times decides to lay out page one. How are you as a writer so focused on words affected by the image? Well, with the Obama mirror image specifically, I had actually known about that image and been so familiar because I spent hours very poorly photoshopping Chris Christie's torso and head into the mirror. Um, so me calling out Rick Perry for photoshopping that ad is a bit pot calling the kettle black, but I'm not running for president. Um, 
And also, I wasn't promoting any specific political agenda, so I was very familiar with that image. In terms of everyone else, um, Donald Trump, Newt Gingrich, these are all such visually interesting people. Um, Newt Gingrich especially, he he looks like, I don't know, like the Michelin man. I love looking at him. And Donald Trump is so fascinating. I, I think they're very visually interesting candidates. Huntsman's kind of boring, but the rest are good. And... and- in that vein, we we have to miss Herman Cain, don't we? We do. He was phenomenal. And actually, I saw a picture of young Herman Cain on the internet. He was a very good-looking man. I, I can totally understand how he got a woman like Gloria. And as a, a person, I think you were raised in in Pe- eastern Pennsylvania, right? Yes, outside of Philadelphia. Uh, and, uh, you know, you... you probably watched uh, President Clinton be president and President Bush and now we're on President Obama. Uh, how do you f- how do you think Obama does in terms of connecting with an audience from a polyoptics perspective? Hmm. I mean is he is he enough of a muse for you or are you able to write interesting things about him? Whenever someone at dinner makes conversation about President Obama, my first thought is what's he been up to these days? I never hear from him. I have no idea what he's doing. Um he's I guess he's kind of laying low, um, but I never really hear from him. Honestly, the Flickr feed is a pretty good insight into what he's been doing. I I know that a lot of media coverage is campaign-centric, and that makes sense, because that's what drives the stories, and that's what has the most drama, but I, I don't know. Obama, he's, he used to be a, a bit more interesting. Um, I just I just don't know what he's up to. How is the how is the blog gonna uh, planning to cover the elections here on in? They're obviously, people are gonna migrate en masse to Des Moines in a few weeks to cover the caucuses, mm-hmm. and then we'll be in New Hampshire to cover the primaries. And not sure about whether it's gonna be a long fight uh, between uh, a long primary fight in the GOP or a relatively brief battle. But uh, y- your process is still to sort of watch from the. Uh, watch from New York City and write, or are you going to get on the road? No, I'm going on the road. I'm really? Going, yeah, I'm going to Des Moines on New Year's Eve, and I'll be there for five days, and then hopefully I'll go to New Hampshire, too, but I haven't booked anything. Have you ever been to Des Moines? I have not. Do you have any tips? Uh, you've got to dress warmly. Yeah, I hear. I hear it's like a negative 1,000 degrees Celsius, so... I, I will have to purchase mittens. Julie Weiner in in the 99 counties of Iowa getting ready for the GOP <laughs> caucus. That's amazing. Vanity Fair's Iowa Bureau. Vanity Fair's Iowa. Has there been a, a Iowa Bureau for Vanity Fair before? Probably not. Maybe Todd Purdom probably headed there. Although he was probably there for the Times and not for Vanity Fair. So I really don't know. So you'll get full press credentials and get on the bus of some candidates and follow them along. And are you gonna are you gonna be a multimedia reporter with your own uh, video and your own still photography, or just be writing? No, I'm actually bringing a photographer with me, um, Justin Bishop, who's taken a lot of photos of um, Occupy Wall Street, for example, everything from Occupy Wall Street to our Oscar party. So he's gonna be coming along. Um, but no, I'm not gonna. I think the focus of our coverage is going to be more about the circus of all of Washington being in Des Moines than it will be the candidates themselves. So taking more cues from fear and loathing than from something like Politico. Were you doing uh, Wonkette in 2008 during the campaign? I was, yes. So now we're in the heart of another campaign. And with things like Twitter and Tumblr and Facebook, from a young blogger's perspective, has it become 
how are th- how have things changed in your ability to to get your message out and to to create work and produce it and distribute it? I think more candidates are definitely on Twitter, which is good for me because there's a lot more potential for interesting stories. Um, Newt Gingrich, for instance, deleted all of his tweets before last July. Um, That was an interesting move. Um, But for the most part, I find politicians' Facebook page and Tumblrs, to the extent that they have them, very dry, usually run by a social media consultant who isn't going to say anything too risky. But... Newt Gingrich is um, a rare exception where he is very opinionated on Twitter and his Twitter used to be great. I mean, he doesn't tweet like this so much anymore, but last spring he went on a lengthy, I don't know, almost like Proustian reflections about remembering eating Easter candy (laughs) and his wife telling him that Reese's eggs have too many calories and he talks about dinosaurs. He's, He's sort of like a lost boy. So I think Twitter lends itself really well to the things that he talks about. Um, But other than that, I haven't been really struck by Twitter or Tumblr. I'm not on the Huntsman Girls train. I don't know. The Huntsman Girls have have almost single-handedly kept their father's campaign alive, haven't they? Yeah, they're they're cool. I don't know. I was never that interested. Um, A lot of people really like the Huntsman Girls. I don't dislike them. I just, it was never something I was super, I don't know, interested in. Um, It sounds like you know, you would be almost forlorn and wistful and perhaps heartbroken if Newt Gingrich were to make an early exit from this race. I would be devastated. I'm so fascinated by Newt Gingrich. He is such a strange guy. I did a lot of research on him for a piece that has yet to be posted about Newt Gingrich through the years. Newt Gingrich in the late 70s when he was a congressman and Newt during his rise to power and fallen Newt then resurrected Newt. He's just, I find him so fascinating. I, he's, he has a lot of strange interests like outer space and dinosaurs and zoos. I, I found out that he wrote the introduction to America's Best Zoos 2008 edition. Um, he is prolific, and you all, you've also written about his his novel about Pearl Harbor, haven't you? I have. He is a very prolific historical fiction writer. He has written about military history. He has written about Pearl Harbor. Not well. <laughs> Why do you say not well? Um, an old New York Times <laughs> review of Pearl Harbor um, called his book a war on punctuation, <laughs> which I loved. Well, um, Julie Weiner. Thank you so much for joining us on on SiriusXM Polyoptics on Channel 124, the POTUS channel. And I I hope that as you uh, go, as you travel the frozen tundra of Iowa, blogging and posting all the way, that you will stop by the SiriusXM booth and pay us another visit when you're you're out, hopefully, more warmly dressed than you are today. Yes, I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Well, that was different. I think the last time that Adam Belmar, my co-host, hosted this program when I was not here, his guest was Sam Donaldson for the full hour. And you couldn't go to more opposite extremes from Sam Donaldson, a legend of television journalism, a person who's been uh, in the national psyche going back into uh, the 70s, to Julie Weiner who is 
certainly carving a new path with VF.com and their blog and applying the sort of Vanity Fair tone to 24-7 coverage of the campaign. And you certainly hear some of the tone and perspective that it's applied to that. But it is interesting to think of the spectrum that of people that Adam and I have been able to talk to this year, from Sam Donaldson to Julie Weiner, uh, Ann Compton of ABC News, Antoine Sanfuentes of NBC, Tony Blinken, Vice President Biden's National Security Advisor, uh, Ari Fleischer, the former White House Press Secretary, Brian Stelter from the New York Times covering media, Chris Lehane, Democratic master of disaster and screenwriter behind Knife Fight, David Hume Kennerly, the Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, Dee Dee Myers, President Clinton's Press Secretary, Don Baer, President Clinton's communications director. The list goes on and on. We've had, uh, I think, about 40 episodes in this, our first year of polyoptics. Each one of them has allowed us to explore sort of a different angle of, of people who serve in government, run for office, and the people who cover that journey from different perspectives, the photojournalists, the writers, and now the bloggers. And from people like Ted Koppel, who come back onto the stage and remind us how much something like Nightline helped us bridge the 70s and 80s and 90s and into 2002, a real new practitioner of a different kind of journalism and polyoptics, Julie Weiner. It's all mashed up in the same cauldron of what we call reporting on political activity. Thank you so much for spending time with us this year. On behalf of my co-host, Adam Belmar, I wish you a very happy holiday. See you in 2012.